Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we're in this series on Lent, and Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter that marks Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness that gives us time just to prepare for the, the moment where we celebrate his death and resurrection. And a part of Lent is a time for us to take a look inward and see the things that God wants to remove. So we're using the gardening language around tilling the soil. What are the things that need to be removed from the soil in order for something new to be planted? We've talked about how sometimes it's those big rocks that are kind of the sins in our life that God wants to remove. And also there's things that are not so visible underneath the surface. We talked about the Tower of Babel and our motivation to make a name for ourselves. And, and this week we're going to be talking about the painstaking act of weeding. And if you've ever done any landscaping, you know the just tireless effort it takes to get the weeds out of the ground. And I remember that being one of my first chores as a kid was to go pick the weeds. And my dad taking time to show me how to get the roots out. But, you know, being a nine, 10 year old boy, I just thought like, you know what? He actually doesn't even know if I'm taking the weeds out or not. And so sometimes I get the weeds out, sometimes I wouldn't, but the lawn looked way better. And he'd come out and like pat me on the back and say, great job, thank you. And But next month, not only did the weeds come back that had roots, but more would grow back because of the roots that I did not dislodge. And that's what we want to talk about today, is sometimes there are things lying beneath the surface that are roots that God wants to remove in our lives that sometimes aren't even the behaviors or things that we do, but sometimes there are things that have been done to us. Sometimes there are things that have been passed down in in general, generationally, things that have been passed on in our biology or our psychology. And and so I want to talk a little bit about blessings and curses and things that have been passed down to us, patterns and habits and even addictions, and how to let God take the roots of those things out of our lives. And in order to do that, we have to talk a little bit about the concept of covenant. You see, covenant is the framework in which we see blessings and curses take place. And covenant is, a, is in a modern and contemporary sense, is a word we don't really use very much. Maybe when talking about marriage, if you grew up within the Christian tradition. But covenant is not a term that is just thrown around. And the reason for that is we really don't have a modern translation for it. We don't really have a category for it. We have contracts, lots of contracts. Uh, We definitely have relational dynamics, but the biblical theme of covenant is quite unique. And so I want to talk about four different concepts. Number one, the birth of the covenant. Where did this covenant, this relational vow and promise take place first in scripture? And how does that affect the rest of the story arc of the Bible? Secondly, what are the blessings and curses that are a result of the covenant? Next is what is... What is the beauty and the fulfillment of the new covenant? And lastly, what does the battle look like that we are still waging within the context of covenant? So the first place I want to begin is in Genesis 15. If you notice, we've been tracking the book of Genesis up to this point. 
And Genesis 15 is an incredible intersection in the story of the Bible, but yet one that doesn't get a lot of attention. And to be honest, it's one that's quite strange. So I want to read you a story and then we're going to take a few minutes to explain it because it just feels so bizarre in a context that feels so removed from it. So Genesis 15 verse 8, God is speaking to Abram and he says, uh, and, and promises him this reward, this nation that's going to come from him. And in verse 8 says, but Abraham, or Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Talking about this promised land. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The bird of prey came down on the carcass, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord promises him this inheritance of the land that he will be able to inhabit and the people that are going to come from him. And in verse 17, it says, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, this is obvious to read this. This is strange language. What is in the world is happening? Why in the middle of God promising Abram an inheritance is there some sort of animal sacrifice where animals are cut in two and they're laid on either side of this aisle? And then Abram, fall, Abram falls into this deep sleep and this darkness comes over it. And then all of a sudden there's this pot that's kind of full of smoke and this flaming torch, these stranger representations. And then it moves down the middle of it. What in the world is going on and how in the world is that define what covenant is? And in order to answer that question, we have to go back and take a look at this ancient practice of covenant. Now, covenant, according to Tim Mackey, Mackey is entering a formal relational partnership to accomplish a goal. Tim Keller describes it as the strongest and most binding of all relationships because of how it combines both law and love. Now, the way this would happen in ancient cultures is if there was some sort of subservient peasant servant role wanting to make a relational contract with some sort of higher up sovereign role or a lord, what they would do in coming into agreement is the lesser party would say, um, let's come into agreement to accomplish this task or to accomplish this goal. And the person who has less to lose, a person who has nothing really to contribute, would take an animal, cut it in half, and lay it on either side. And then that servant or that lesser role would walk down the middle of this bloody aisle, and it would be a sign saying, if I don't keep up my end of the contract, if I don't abide by the law that is being established here today, then I, whatever has been done to this animal will be done to me. And this was a, a way of kind of binding this relationship through this goal, this common goal. So God makes this promise that Abram, Abram is going to be blessed and he's going to be a blessing. It's going to be this, this incredible story that comes from his life. And then God does something very, very strange. 
He tells him to make this sacrifice, cut these animals in half. Again, at this point, not strange. But as he's doing this, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And as there's thick darkness that comes, and all of a sudden these two signs appear, this smoking pot and then this flaming torch, which we're going to find out in a few chapters later as we enter into the book of Exodus. Those are the signs of God's presence, the smoke um, during the day and then the fire by night. So God's presence represented in these two symbols begins to walk down the aisle while Abram does nothing and as he just, as he sleeps. And what this was is something that we have to catch. We have to pay attention to because it literally frames the rest of the Bible. What God is saying is I'm promising myself to you. I'm promising you blessing. But if we don't meet these relational terms. If I don't, or if you don't, you're not held responsible. I'm held responsible. God says, if you break the terms of this relational agreement, I'll pay the penalty. I will be the suffering walking, suffering servant walking down the bloody aisle, which is obviously a foreshadowing and a prophetic pointing towards Jesus who would essentially take that upon, upon himself. Now, the one thing we don't see in Genesis 15 that we don't get till a little bit later is the terms of the covenant because each covenant has certain binding terms. Think about a marriage. When you say the husband and the wife, the groom and the bride say for better or for worse, for sickness and in health, for richer or for poor, till death do us part. There is an agreed upon set of terms. Now, God does the same thing with his people. He gives them these set of terms. He gives them ultimately the 10 commandments. And within the 10 commandments, he lays out, this is how you ought to live. And then those commandments are expounded upon in 613 total laws. And this encompassed what was, is still to this day called the law, the Old Testament relational terms of the covenant to be faithful to Yahweh and Yahweh to be faithful to them. And if they abide by these relational terms, they're blessed. But if they don't buy, abide by the relational terms, they receive a curse. And they are exiled out of that relationship and out of that land. So I want to read you a pivotal moment in Exodus 34 when those terms are established. Those 10 commandments are given. It says, so Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And the Lord God came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord or Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. Meaning this verse shows up more than any other verse in the Bible repeatedly. This moment where God reveals his name, his nature. This is who I am. 
John Mark Comer wrote a book around this verse called God Has a Name. And he says, when God describes himself, he doesn't start with how powerful he is or how he knows everything there is to know or how he's been around since before time and space and there's no one else like him in the universe. That's all true. But apparently to God, it is not most in, the most important thing. When God describes himself, he starts with his name. Then he talks about what we call character. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And this nature of God overarchs the entire Bible. This is what we see ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. is slow to anger, rich in love, gracious and compassionate. This is who God always was, is, and will be. But you see that there at the end of it, it talks about if this blessing will visit a thousand generations. But for those who don't keep his covenant, it talks about that there will be a response to this, to the third and fourth generation. And so we're really left with one of the greatest paradoxes in scriptures. And it's this, is God's blessing conditional or unconditional? Because it seems right here that it's, it's quite conditional, that God's blessing is, is magnificent, it's, a, it's abundant, but it's conditional. And But we see all throughout scripture in the Psalms and Jeremiah and Lamentations that God seems to be like, I'm going to bless you. My mercy is new every single morning. There's nothing you can do to, to rob yourself of my unfailing love. And then sometimes within the same chapter, it just talks about, but if you don't live faithfully to me, then you will, you will reap the, the consequence of those decisions, that curse will be upon you. And so blessings and curses are a very real conditional element to God's covenant to his people. And so we're left with this sense of like, well, what, what is it? How does God resolve, like Tim Keller says, his law and his love? And we like to lean into one or the other, don't we? There's some of us who like the idea of God's law because it's black and white. It's clear you can do it or you can't and it's justice. And some of us feel really uncomfortable with his love. who are like, no, 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 we should focus on his law and doing what is right. But some of us are the opposite. We understand his love and we're like, no, it's his mercy and his grace. And his law kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. And, and shouldn't we just focus on his love? But you see, you cannot read the Old Testament and, and separate his law and his love. It's actually his law that protects his love. And so, but we are left with a massive uh, dilemma. What do we do in this covenant relationship? When we have rebelled against and broken the terms of the covenant, and there's clearly curses that are attached to that. And this is where we're reminded the very opening scene of the covenant. God is the one who walks down the bloody aisle. It's he who says, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, I'll take it on for you. I'll pay the penalty. Whatever happened to this sacrificial animal, I will become that sacrificial animal, which is why Paul says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That is written, as it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Now listen to verse 13, Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole or on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing giving to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. My friends, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ became the curse for us. He didn't just take on the penalty of the curse. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. He actually became the curse. So when Christ died, the curse died. The curse was removed and all that's left is a blessing. Abraham's blessing is now yours and mine. It's something that we get to inherit, we didn't earn, but because that those covenantal terms of blessings and curses, and if you're under it, have been atoned for. The curse is now as dead as Jesus was on the cross, but the blessing is as alive as he was on Resurrection Sunday. So we now live in the blessing, Abraham's blessing, because of Christ's penalty that he absorbed on the cross. And now we get to walk according to that. Now, I know what you're thinking is, if that's true, if the, if the curse of sin is gone, why do we still seem to struggle with sin? Why does it still feel that even as followers of Jesus, we deal with this sense of a cursed world or body or existence? That same letter where Paul explains how Jesus became a curse for us. And now we have the blessing of Abraham. He writes this three chapters later. He says, it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out and you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And what happens in this moment is Paul says in a very real sense, sin still exists in the form of this war that goes on within every single one of us. It's our, it's our flesh, which we've talked about before, it's our, which is best defined as our humanity still exists in its brokenness. That's a war with the spirit. They want different things. And so the curse has been obliterated, but our flesh still exists. Sin still exists. John says, if you claim to be without sin, you make God out to be a liar. And so it is still a war that is going on. But here's one thing we have to remember. We aren't battling sin underneath the, 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 the tightrope of blessing and curse. The curse has been taken care of. We now live in the blessing. So we fight against sin under the blessing of covenant, not the fear of a curse of the covenant. John Mark Homer again says, Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Eugene Peterson says, the easiest thing in the world is to be a Christian. What is hard is to be a sinner. What he means by that is being Christian requires something, costs something of us, but a life of sin actually will end up costing you much more. 
Dr. Tim Mackey defines a curse as when God's hands people over to the consequences of seizing our own blessing on our own terms, meaning the curse has been taken care of, yet the consequences of our sin still exist. Now, what this means for us is that there are sins that we participate in, but there's another level of sin that it talks about back in, in Exodus that actually gets passed down to us. There are certain dispositions of our mind and our body towards addiction, towards sin, towards fear, towards these, these areas of the effects of sin on our world that we all live in. And the, and the hope of the day is to be able to deal with that weed, that, that, that root of the weed, not just being like, I want to stop my behavior. I want to stop doing this thing. It's actually saying, what is the root cause of that? How do we deal with that? What does Jesus have to say about that? I was talking with uh, my friend, we were having coffee this morning and he was sharing with me how um, he brought this, this arch support for his back. And I'm like, how did you injure your back? And he says, actually, I injured it a few years ago. He's like, I was pulling out this massive weed and it wasn't coming out. And so I finally gave it all I had. And when I did, I just yanked as hard as I could. And as the root came loose, or some of the root came loose, it actually tweaked my, my back and I'm still having to pay the ramifications of that years later. And as he was saying that, I was like, you know, that's what happens when we try and take the roots out of our lives without the cross. We're trying to do it on our own accord, but we have to remember, no, we live in the blessing. We actually live as a result of that curse being gone, yet, how we approach those weeds is incredibly different. So how do, we, how do we do this? How do we take out these weeds? Well, Jesus says that we love God with these four components, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, our emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical being is how we love God, which means those are probably the same areas that we have to consider in terms of keeping watch over those areas of sin, those areas in our life that feel broken. And that might look like a lot of different things. Now, the, the term curse even, it feels kind of like a foreign concept, at least in the West. In the East, is actually very common. In ancient cultures, it's very common uh, to actually have people trying to do some sort of incantation, sometimes curse over you. But for many of us within the West, it looks like something different. It looks like maybe a narrative that was spoken over your life that has become on repeat. You just play that tape over and over again. And maybe when you were a little boy or a little girl, you heard things like, can't you be more like your sibling? Or why can't you work harder or be smarter? Why do you act like that? And it gets said enough that although that was maybe never meant to be a curse, it ends up bearing that same weight. It becomes that that thing that attaches to your identity, attaches to your heritage, attaches to your legacy. It's like, I guess I'm this kind of person because that's what's always been told to me. I was chatting with my, my friend, Chris Mayles, who's a performance coach and works with like CEOs all around the world in these large, these large corporations. And one of the things that he teaches them is you can never outperform the internal narrative you believe about yourself. And again, that's, that's language borrowed from kind of corporate business world. But I think there's something about it is we can't live into our potential if we have a poor narrative about who we are. 
and the and those the patterns of sin that we have been walking in and we have inherited. So how do we do that? It talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We have to fight differently. So let me just give you a quick word, quick note on those four different elements of our human being, right? Of, of, our, of our humanity, I should say. Right? This idea of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Number one, our heart talks about our emotions. It's who we feel. It's how we feel. It's who we are. And I think sometimes when we're addressing sin that's been passed down to us generationally and hereditary, this, this sense of brokenness, sometimes the best thing we can do is to actually pay attention to our emotions, to actually be aware of what are those things that kind of come up with inside of us. If you were around uh, three years ago, we did a series at our church on emotional health. And one of the tools that we recommended to the church was called the Genogram. There's actually one on our church website, lightsandiego.com under resources. And if you would like to, it'd be good to map out what are some of the stories you've inherited. I remember I had a conversation with my mom a few years ago and she was just talking to me. She says, you know, Benji, our family generationally has dealt with the spirit of infirmity, this, this a sense of being sick. And she looked at me and she says, I think God wants you to help break that. And one thing I'd never realized, I had so many memories of my mom and my grandma and these generations of just being sick for most of my life. And then I realized my life, there seemed to always be something wrong with me. And in that moment, in that sense, I was like, Lord, I, I don't want to feel sick. But what it did is I actually had to take awareness. I had to realize that, oh, in my heart, there's something that's, has, that's kind of bent towards something's wrong with me. And that had to be addressed. The second thing is our soul, our spirituality. There is a very real invitation to engage some of those generational things through intercessory prayer, by naming those things that we've just become aware of emotionally. Say, like, Lord, I'm that spirit of fear, that, that spirit of addiction or lust, and, and doing spiritual work by praying those things in the name of Jesus. One conversation I had this week that was really encouraging is a guy in our church named Paul Saber, and he was just sharing with me a little bit about his story of, of the Lord inviting him to change at a very deep level. And just this thing that was not going to, it didn't seem like it was going away and it was actually causing damage it was within his, his new marriage. And it had a lot to do with his, uh, how he engaged conflict and his own temper. And, and it, he just started talking about, it. I was like, man, the, the culture I grew up in and uh, what was modeled to me in my house how largely had to deal with dominance and a temper and rage. Right? And it was never abusive, it was never swearing, but it was, it was intense and it was not yielding a sense of health within my own marriage. And one day I remember, he was telling me, I remember telling my wife, like, you better get used to it. And the Lord bringing him in that moment to the passage in James says, blessings and curses should not come from the same stream. 
And he said, for the next three years, he read James. And he just made this promise, I'm never going to do this again. And for seven years, he was just sharing with me how he's like, I didn't raise my voice. And, and then there was a moment seven years later after his mom had passed away that something was said and he lost his temper and raised his voice. And the look in his wife's eyes was so intense because it brought her back seven years before to those first two years. And he realized something and he said this to me and it was so profound. He said, I had spent seven years trying to not be like my dad. And in that moment, I realized that I needed to stop trying to not be my dad. And I needed to become like my father, my heavenly father. And he says, the rest of my life, my goal wasn't to not be my dad. My goal was to become more and more like my heavenly father. And so I'm like, how do you do that? How, did, how do you engage in that process? And he says, I say the same prayer every single morning. And he says, Lord, please make me more gentle. And I'm like, you pray that every morning. And he's in his 60s now. He said, yeah. He says, I know that that always lies beneath the surface. So every single day, I'm going to pray to be more like my father. And it was, it was so profound as he was talking about that. He says, and we're talking about this message. And he says, you know, when you understand that you're not under a curse anymore. Yes, there are, there's sin and there are curses, but the curse has been, has been handled. It's been absorbed in Christ. There's no error in your life that can't change. There's, whoever is watching this, whatever your thing is, whatever that generational thing is you're continuing to deal with, you're not under the curse anymore. You are living in the blessing, which means you get to become more and more like your heavenly father. And it might look like you're waking up every morning and saying, Lord, help me with this thing. Lord, make me more like you in this area. But I just want to encourage you. We live in the new covenant where we live in the blessing and the curse has been taken care of. And the sin that goes on in our life can be dealt with. We can engage it emotionally. We can engage it spiritually like the story I just told you. The next conversation I got to have this week that was so profound was actually with a scientist who was sharing me about the groundbreaking research that's going around through the human genome. And how one of the things they discovered is within our genes and our genetic makeup, there are things that make us uh, bent towards certain negative things, whether it's trauma or addiction. And one of the things they found out is you can actually, not, not me, scientists, can actually go and cut those parts of the gene out. You could remove the part of your genetic code that deals with addiction, which is great news. But the FDA won't approve that sort of technology because it comes with a certain sense of liability that if you don't cut it just right or what you add back in isn't, isn't, doesn't do well, then it creates all sorts of problems. And so they've actually shifted to this new research that is, is really what everyone's working towards called epigenetics. And epigenetics, instead of removing part of your, your genetic code, you're actually changing your genetic code. He went on to explain how our genetic makeup is added by our mom and our dad. The mom's uh, contribution is kind of like the bones and the structure of what we are. And then that comes to the egg and the sperm. What the, what the father adds is what 
is what these scientists are calling punctuation marks over that structure. And those punctuation marks, based on where they are, how many they are, determine things like behavior. It determines things like addiction. It determines those things. And by studying that, what they have found is it's the father's contribution biologically that makes how people have a disposition towards certain sin, which is fascinating because in 350 AD, a theologian by the name of Augustine was writing about his, his theolo theological theory around the original sin. And he said it was passed down from Adam naturally, biologically. It actually gets imputed into us. And what's so incredible is biologists are actually saying that's actually correct. There's something that is passed down into our genetic makeup by our father that actually makes us more a disposition to certain negative uh, traits or actions. And we see this especially in terms of addiction and in terms of trauma. One of the ways we saw this is that people three generations removed from the Holocaust were having the same dreams as their grandparents were, even though they never saw that place or experienced those things. Alcoholics, what they found is those, the genetic imprint that comes on those things lasts for guess how long? Three to four generations, which is exactly what it talks about in, in uh, Exodus. But, here, and what, but then he says this, like, here's the good news. Those things can change. We're just discovering you can change your, the molecular makeup of your genes by your environment. I'm like, well, what do you mean by your environment? He says, if you can find yourself in a safe community of belonging, that's marked by the giving and receiving of forgiveness, it can actually change your genetic makeup. It can change those punctuation marks that would have led you towards a certain thing or would have led you down this really negative pattern or, or predisposed you towards this kind of really dangerous way of living. Because that actually gets changed. And he kept saying this thing, the most powerful tool to change the genetic makeup is forgiveness. And he says, and people are catching on to these environmental changes. And so they're, they're pumping things like yoga or meditation and things like that. It's like all of them have somewhat of an effect. He says, but nothing has more of an effect of a community marked by forgiveness, which is what? The church. Meaning that if we have a, a scientific, a biological reason to gather, to be a covenant community, to do what? To forgive each other. And as we do that, guess what happens? we actually get to see change, what the theological term here is called progressive sanctification. We are moving more and more like Christ. And in so doing, we are co-opting, we are, we are subverting the negative trends of our own sin. And this is why it's so important to what? To dig up the root. And we do this within the context of, of a forgiving community. And the last thing I just want to share with you is that it's even within it's our strength, our physical body, it's within our mind. And so if, if you're thinking, your thoughts are, are trapped, it's engaging with that. Maybe you call a friend or your open table leader. Maybe you sit down with a Christian therapist. But whether it's with your heart, soul, mind, or strength, it's actually just finding yourself saying like, okay, I need to, I need to not let these roots exist anymore. So what is it for you? What are the things that have been passed down to you generationally that God says, this in this Lent season, let's dig out those roots. 
Let's place you in the context of a covenant community marked by forgiveness. Let's do a genome map and we like look back at your things and let's bring in prayers of, of deliverance, of praying in the name of Jesus for God to do these things. Let's call uh, someone who can walk you through some of the mental tools you can have to find freedom. And this is, this is the beautiful invitation of Jesus is he wants your heart, soul, mind, and strength to be marked by wholeness, by salvation. And that's our hope in the middle of this specific teaching series is what is that thing that God is identifying saying, I want to actually touch and to move that. And so a few things in terms of response, I just want to bring before you. Number one is that when we reflect on the definitive work of the cross, that the curse has been handled and we now live in the blessing, our first response should be worship. It should be overflowing gratitude in our hearts. Second thing is if, as we are aware of the sin that still exists, sometimes generationally, even though the curse has been handled and we live in the blessing, let's go after those areas in blessing to, ch to change the course of our family heritage, to change the course of our leg legacy. I don't want my children to have to deal with the same things that I dealt with, which means I get to be invited into that blessed, grace-filled walk with Jesus towards sanctification. And we do that by sharing. In the context of community, we do that by inviting others in and saying, hey, I want to walk it out. I want to walk towards healing and wholeness. And the last practical thing I would encourage you to do, and it's something that's coming up here in just a couple weeks, is actually baptism. It's actually saying, and, and, and this is for those who have not been baptized, or maybe you were baptized as a child, you don't remember it, but today you're marking the, the death of your sin. The death of not only your sin, but maybe generations past sin that still marks your life. And in doing that, we get to celebrate you through coming to life. And for those who have been baptized, remember your baptism. Continue to live in that way. Live in death to your flesh. Right? Your flesh has been, has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and live towards that resurrection life. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much for the covenant that you gave, your covenant love. And that thank you that in the terms of the covenant, when we were unfaithful, you took on the curse and you gave us only blessing. And so Lord, from that place of blessing, I pray that we would look seriously at the sin in our life and the sin we've inherited and say, Jesus, we want to move towards wholeness. We want to move towards uh, being a part of a community marked by forgiveness and grace and belonging so that we would be able to say, sin doesn't have a hold on me and my trajectory. I don't have to be the same. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.